Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning and welcome to Teddy Talks for Tuesday, May 12th, 2020. I'm your host, Joe Wiegand, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, the beautiful Badlands along the Little Missouri River, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, and future home of Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum. And as I gaze to the west, also a future uh, uh, location of the Point to Point Park, Part of it completed and part of it being worked on as we speak. A new Little Bully uh, putt-putt golf course being built here. There is a wonderful Bully Pulpit golf course named the number one new public golf course when it was instituted. Got to be going on 20 years or more now ago. And uh, anyway, uh, that comes from that phrase that Theodore Roosevelt coined. One senator at the White House bristling at his moralizing said, Mr. President, you're preaching. Theodore Roosevelt responded, Senator, you're right, and the presidency is a bully pulpit, too. And so uh, the bully pulpit is something that the president, uh, governor, mayor, uh, I, I believe that each and indi every individual citizen has a bully pulpit uh, that they can ascend in life as need be. And uh, I'm glad that that point-to-point -point park is moving forward. There's a zip line coming off the buttes and I hope you'll accept my invitation to come and play with me in point-to-point -point park. Named for the game Theodore Roosevelt played with his uh, children and nieces and nephews and with members of Congress and diplomats and Army and Navy officers uh, go from point A to point B and when coming to an obstacle, a down tree, a creek, a cliff, a barn, a haystack, never to go around, but always over, under, or through. We'll have a lazy river and a retelling of the Capture the Boat Thieves, which was, for those of you that have been around, our first Teddy Talk on the anniversary of that occasion, April 1st. Uh, and we did 26 talks with the 26th president in the month of April. We're in the midst of 26 talks with the 26th president here in the month of May. As we get into our busy summer, which is going to be busy here in Medora, we've got uh, information that people are making plans again to come and see the Medora musical, my Teddy Roosevelt show, to, to visit the park and see the bison and the wild horses and the and the prairie dog towns that uh, delight and enchant the children. So, so uh, we're looking forward to that uh, to that busy summer this summer, and you're being a part of it. Today is a wonderful, important day. This is International Nurses 
day. Boy, do we say thank you to our nurses uh, uh, throughout the world, especially uh, in those places where those nurses now are engaged in dealing with this uh, uh, pandemic and also reminded in the news that nurses are working all over the world uh, in those places that people need help uh, for all sorts of uh, reasons. The reasons it's, it is International Nurses Day is because today is the birthday in 1820. Oh, I just realized it is indeed the bicentennial birthday. Blow the trumpets for Florence Nightingale. Born uh, in Florence, Tuscany, uh, that's even before the formation of modern-day Italy. Uh, she was the nurse and social reformer. Uh, she uh, led the movement for modern nursing. When nurses uh, get their uh, degrees conferred, I'm told they still take a version of the Nightingale Oath uh, for their profession. She died in 1910 at the age of 90 in Mayfair, London, England. And so to uh, Florence Nightingale and to all of our nurses, thank you so very much. 1850, the birth in Beverly, Massachusetts on this date, May 12th, of Henry Cabot Lodge, American Republican senator and historian from Massachusetts, prominent family, one of those Boston Brahmin families you hear about. As well, though, uh, in uh, attending at Harvard and getting his bachelor's degree and a master's degree and a PhD in history, and the latter coming in 1876, the centennial year for our country when Theodore Roosevelt matriculated to Harvard as a, a young freshman from New York. Uh, the, uh, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge amongst the first to receive that PhD degree conferred by uh, Harvard. Of course, Henry Cabot Lodge uh, uh, and his wife uh, Anna, uh, called Nanny Lodge, uh, they were good friends of the Roosevelts. And as I look at Theodore Roosevelt, uh, look at his life, I realize that, uh, of course, he lost his father during his sophomore year at Harvard. Uh, he lost his brother as a young uh, professional man a decade uh, later. He gravitated in his friendships, which I think he had sincere and strong friendships. Uh, here uh, in the Badlands, he brought out William Sewell from the north woods of Maine, about a decade or a little more older than Theodore. Uh, his dear friend, Seth Bullock, uh, the uh, sheriff of Deadwood in his youth and later United States Marshal uh, by his appointment for South Dakota, uh, again, about a decade older, as was uh, Henry Cabot Lodge here, eight years older than Theodore Roosevelt. Each one of these men, perhaps big brother uh, figures and Theodore Roosevelt's uh, array of uh, friendships. It's said of cousin Franklin Delano Roosevelt that uh, as president, even with all of those terms and, and uh, those uh, cocktail parties at the end of the workday where nothing about the war, the economy was to be spoken, that uh, he was still an enigma himself, that no one really got to know the inner Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Well, I think you got to know Theodore Roosevelt, uh, especially if you were a good friend like Henry Cabot Lodge. The friendship, as far as political work, uh, goes back to the 1884 Republican Convention where young Henry Cabot Lodge and Theodore Roosevelt led the effort to defeat the nomination of Senator Blaine uh, from the state of Maine, famously cartooned as a, a senator with tattoos of all of the uh, sponsoring corporations uh, about him. Uh, I think that based off the uh, Old Testament story of Deborah. The uh, relationship with Henry Cabot Lodge that dear uh, and deep friendship extending back to 1884, uh, the convention during which, by the way, 
Theodore Roosevelt successfully led the effort to have Congressman John Lynch of Mississippi, a former slave, seated as a temporary chairman of that Republican convention, uh, certainly uh, in terms of trying to defeat the uh, stalwarts behind uh, Blaine, an effort to uh, steer the convention towards a, an alternate nomination for the presidency. But, but this uh, move to have the first African-American to serve in the chair of a great national party convention was led by Theodore Roosevelt, part of, I think, his sincere effort to see uh, equal treatment uh, for those, uh, uh, those deserving. So uh, in 1895, Theodore Roosevelt is serving as United States Civil Service Commissioner. Uh, his friend Henry Cabot Lodge, I do believe by this time, is in the United States Senate where he would rise to be majority leader and uh, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, uh, leading the effort to defeat uh, Wilson's uh, proposal to join the League of Nations. Uh, but in 1895, uh, they very often, the, the, uh, the couples, Nanny and uh, Henry Cabot Lodge and Theodore and Edith uh, Kermit Caro Roosevelt, uh, they uh, dine together frequently. And, and it's told in the original introduction to a book that they co-wrote, Hero Tales from American History, published in 1895, that at dinner the two men were saying, you know what we ought to do is we ought to write a, a collection of brief biographical sketches uh, good for the general public, but also especially written for young people uh, to convey to them the sorts of people of character and action, uh, the heroes that Theodore Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge had from their own youth. Well, Edith calls him on it and says, well, why, why don't you just go ahead and do it? Uh, Henry Cabot Lodge subsequently uh, 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 tells the story in the original introduction, the two gentlemen dedicate the book to EKR uh, because it was uh, to you, we owe the suggestion of writing this book. Uh, but uh, Henry Cabot Lodge will write a second introduction in the collected works of Theodore Roosevelt, published after Roosevelt's death. And in there, I think we get a little insight from someone who can really be said to be Theodore Roosevelt's friend. What the two men do, and, and Lodge reviews it, they spend many days walking and talking and uh, about uh, how they would write this, and, and they agree on everything included. I think as it goes, it's that Roosevelt writes 14 of these brief chapters, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, 12. Uh, but uh, here, to give you a sample, and, and this addresses a question that's been asked by uh, some of the listeners, uh, what books are to be recommended? Uh, for the general reader uh, uh, to, uh, to get a bit of the zest and uniqueness of young Theodore Roosevelt, Mornings on Horseback by David McCullough. There's not a thing that... David McCullough has written that isn't just delightful. It's a sketch as well that uh, shows the influence of mother and father, grandfather and grandmother, and to me proves the wisdom of the old saw that the boy is the father to the man. Uh, the corollary true, the girl being the mother to the woman. That If you know Theodore Roosevelt as a little boy, you probably can understand uh, that the boy who gasped for breath and built his body and uh, took boxing lessons to take on the bullies. He's the fa same fellow who uh, struggled to take on the, uh, the forces in Congress. Well, here are the, uh, the stories that are told. Uh, oh, of course, I, I wanted to conclude Edmund Morris's trilogy. The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt uh, is a book that changed my life. But in Hero Tales, I think I have a recommendation that I would recommend for any grandparent wanting to read stories to a grandchild, any parent wanting to read stories to a child, and, and if you've got a, one of those precocious readers, 
uh, perhaps stories that the child can read to the parent or grandparent. Uh, I am afraid that uh, uh, all too often the high expectations that were had in the Victorian uh, era uh, about uh, children's ability to read uh, have been uh, lessened to a point. Uh, oh, I myself learned uh, uh, that uh, Jane uh, can run, but uh, there's some wonderful things I think children will enjoy if you challenge their reading skills. Just a quick uh, uh, run through some of the titles from Hero Tales uh, from American History, for I do recommend you to get a, a copy of this book. By Henry Cabot Lodge, these chapters, Washington, The Battle of Trenton, Bennington, Governor Morris, The Burning of the Philadelphia, John Quincy Adams and the Right of Petition, Francis Parkman, General Grant and the Vicksburg Campaign, Robert Gould Shaw, Charles Russell Lowell, Sheridan at Cedar Creek, and the concluding chapter, Lincoln. Uh, those by Theodore Roosevelt, Daniel Boone and the founding of Kentucky, George Rogers Clark and the conquest of the Northwest, Kings Mountain, the storming of Stony Point, the cruise of the Wasp, the General Armstrong privateer, the Battle of New Orleans, Remember the Alamo, Hampton Roads, the Flag Bearer, the Death of Stonewall Jackson, the Charge at Gettysburg, Lieutenant Cushing and the Ram Albemarle, Farragut at Mobile Bay. Can't you imagine just being inspired to uh, uh, to uh, read those chapters, and especially if you might do so uh, with family or friends. Let me read in honor of Henry Cabot Lodge's 170th birthday, uh, just a little bit of something. The conclusion of his uh, uh, introduction in 1920. As I bring to an end, this is Henry Cabot Lodge. I should read it in a Boston brogue, I shan't. As I bring to an end this brief account of the volume of historical tales which we framed and wrote together, I find that what I value most of all for myself is the memory of the time when we were concerned in it. Then, as at many other periods, we rode or walked together every day, and we derived much pleasure and satisfaction from selecting our subjects and discussing their treatment. There never was a more delightful companion in the world than Theodore Roosevelt. He had an unusually wide range of interests. He knew books and literature and loved them both. He had seen men and cities like Ulysses and had the keenest interest in everything relating to our common humanity. He had no taste for telling stories which existed solely to be pointed with a joke. And he never was in danger of drifting into anecdotage. But he had the rare and fascinating gift of the tale-teller, where the merit lies in the art of narration, in the humor or sentiment which pervades it, and not merely in a jest which concludes it. He was very observant, and nothing escaped him. The incident of the passing day of which he told you might be slight, but in his hands became a delight. 
This was owing primarily to his abounding sense of humor, one of the great sources of his strength. The final test of humor is when it involves the man himself, and those who enjoy a joke against themselves are not many. Great men particularly, even when quite keenly alive to humor, which affects others, are apt to have their sense of humor chilled when it begins to stray within their own precincts. This was never the case with Theodore Roosevelt. He was as quick to laugh at himself as at another when there was genuine humor in the situation. This is one of the salient qualities, rare and fine, which made him so sympathetic as a companion. He liked to talk of his own doings and his own adventures, of his own opinions of men and books. Most people do, both men and women. But he liked equally to hear the experiences and the thoughts of others. And if those others were interesting, there never was a better listener than he. His mind moved with extraordinary rapidity, and he could grasp any proposition presented to him, no matter how suddenly, with a quickness of apprehension which I have never seen equaled. His mere presence was so full of vitality, so charged with energy, which it gave forth with lavish generosity, that it was contagious and seemed to bring all the possible joy of living as a gift, or rather as an atmosphere to those who rode or walked beside him. To analyze, to criticize, or to display all the qualities of that many-sided nature would require a volume, and a modest preface to one of his books offers neither the occasion nor the space which such a work demands, if performed as it ought to be performed and be worthy of the subject. I have said this much because this little book was the result of many talks on the road, in the streets, and by the fireside. It was built up by conversation, the result of close companionship. Of those happy days, only the memory remains. As in our brief life upon earth, the future lessens while the past extends, and hopes are replaced by recollection. There cannot be a tinge of sadness even to the tenderest and most precious memories. They are nonetheless dear on that account, and as they go with us to the land where the quiet colored end of evening smiles, we have all the profound consolation of knowing that the past at least is secure. Hope may fade, but the memories we love can never grow dim or be taken from us. There are some who have written of Henry Cabot Lodge as if he were uh, a cold fish, not a friend in the Senate, always serious and earnest. And yet I can just see even uh, that Boston Brahmin laughing at a story told at his own expense, perhaps by Theodore Roosevelt. Today, remarks given by Theodore Roosevelt uh, to the students at Leland Stanford Junior University, named for the son who died young of his uh, uh, family, uh, uh, who uh, his father had been governor of California, a Republican, uh, one of the great railroad barons uh, coming from uh, the Sacramento region, the Northern California region. Leland Stanford Junior University, a newer university than at that time, Palo Alto, California. The remarks of Theodore Roosevelt, May 12th, 1903. President Jordan, and you, my fellow citizens, and especially you, my fellow college men and women, I thank you for your greeting 
And I know you will not grudge my saying, first of all, a special word of thanks to the men of the Grand Army. It is a fine thing to have before a body of students, men who by their practice have rendered it unnecessary that they should preach. For what we have to teach by precept, you, the men of 61 to 65, have taught by deed, by action. I am proud as an American college man myself to have seen the tablet outside within the court which shows that this young university sent 85 of her sons to war when the country called for them. I come from a college which boasts as its proudest building that which stands to the memory of Harvard's sons who responded to the call of Lincoln when the hour of the nation's danger was at hand. It will be a bad day for this country and a worse day for all educative institutions in this country if ever such a call is made the men of college training do not feel it peculiarly incumbent upon them to respond. President Jordan has been kind enough to allude to me as an old friend. Mr. Jordan is too modest to say that he has long been not only a friend, but a man to whom I have turned for advice and help before and since I became president. I am glad to have the chance of acknowledging my obligations to him. And I am also glad that when I ask you to strive toward productive scholarship, toward productive citizenship, I can use the president of the university as an example. Of course, in any of our American institutions of learning, even more important than the production of scholarship is the production of citizenship. That is the most important thing that any institution of learning can produce. There are a great number of students who cannot and should not try in afterlife to lead a career of scholarship, but no university can take high rank if it does not aim at the production of and succeed in producing a certain number of deep and thorough scholars, not scholars whose scholarship is of the barren kind, but men of productive scholarship, men who do good work, I trust great work in the fields of literature, of art, of science, in all their manifold activities. Here in California, this nation, composite in its race stocks, speaking an old world tongue and with an inherited old world culture, has acquired an absolutely new domain. I do not mean new only in the sense of additional territory like that already possessed. I mean new in the sense of new surroundings, to use the scientific phrase of a new environment. Being new, I think we have a right to look for a substantial achievement on the part of your people along new lines. I do not mean the self-conscious striving after newness, which is only too apt to breed eccentricity, but I mean that those among you whose bent is towards scholarship as a career should keep in mind the fact that such scholarship should be productive, and should therefore aim at giving to the world some addition to the world's stock of what is useful or beautiful. And if you work simply and naturally, taking advantage of your surroundings as you find them, then in my belief a new mark will be made in the history of intellectual achievement by our race. You of this institution are blessed in its extraordinary physical beauty and appropriateness of architecture and surroundings with a suggestion of what I might call the Americanized Greek. Such is your institution, situated on the shores of this great ocean, built by a race which has come steadily westward, which has come to where the Occident looks west to the Orient, a race whose members here, fresh, vigorous, have the boundless possibilities of the future brought to their very doors in a sense that cannot be possible for the members of the race situated further east. 
Surely there will be some great outcome in the way not merely of physical, but of moral and intellectual work worth doing. I do not want you to turn out prigs. I do not want you to turn out the self-conscious. I believe with all my heart in play. I want you to play hard without encroaching on your work. I do, nevertheless, think you ought to have at least the consciousness of the serious side of what all this means and of the necessity of effort thrust upon you so that you may justify by your deeds in the future your training and the extraordinary advantages under which that training has been obtained. America, the Republic of the United States, is of course in a peculiar sense typical of the present age. We represent the fullest development of the democratic spirit acting on the extraordinary and highly complex industrial growth of the last half century. It behooves us to justify by our acts the claims made for that political and economic progress. We will never justify the existence of the Republic by merely talking each 4th of July about what the Republic has done. In our homage is lip loyalty merely the great deeds of those who went before us, the great deeds of the times of Washington and of the times of Lincoln, the great deeds of the men who won the revolution and founded the nation, and of the men who preserved it, who made it a union and a free republic, will simply rise to shame us. We can honor our fathers and our fathers' fathers only by ourselves striving to rise level to their standard. There are plenty of tendencies for evil in what we see round about us. Thank heaven there are an even greater number of tendencies for good. And one of the things, Mr. Jordan, which it seems to me give this nation cause for hope is the national standard of ambition, which makes it possible to recognize with admiration and regard such work as the founding of a university of this character. It speaks well for our nation that men and women should desire during their lives to, do, to devote the fortunes which they were able to acquire or to inherit because of our system of government, because of our social system, to objects so entirely worthy and so entirely admirable is the foundation of a great seat of learning such as this. All that we outsiders can do is to pay our tribute of respect to the dead and to the living who have done such good, and at least to make it evident that we appreciate to the full what has been done. I have spoken of scholarship. I want to go back to the question of citizenship, a question affecting not merely the scholars among you, not merely those who hereafter to lead lives devoted to science, to art, to productivity and literature, and when you take up science, art, and literature, remember that one first-class bit of work is better than 1,000 fairly good bits of work. That as the years roll on, the man or the woman who has been able to make a masterpiece with the pen, the brush, the pencil, in any way, has rendered a service to the country which is not all his or her compeers uh, who merely do fairly good second-rate work can ever accomplish. Only a limited number of us can ever become scholars or work su successfully along the lines I have spoken of. But we can all be good citizens. We can all lead a life of action, a life of endeavor, a life that is to be judged primarily by the effort, somewhat by the result, along the lines of helping the growth of what is right and decent and generous and lofty in our several communities, in the state, in the nation. You men and women who have had the advantages of a college training are not to be excused if you fail to do, not as well as, but more than the average man outside who has not had your advantages. 
Every now and then I meet, at least I meet him in the East, and I dare say he is to be found here, the man who, having gone through college, feels that somehow that confers upon him a special distinction which relieves him from the necessity of showing himself as good as his fellows. I see you recognize this type. That man is not only a curse to the community and incidentally to himself, but he is a curse to the cause of academic education, the college and university training, because by his existence he serves as an excuse for those who like to denounce such education. Your education, your training, will not confer on you one privilege in the way of excusing you from effort or from work. All it can do, and what it should do, is to make you a little better fitted for such effort, for such work. And I do not care whether that is in business, politics, in no matter what branch of endeavor. All it can do is by the training you have received, by the advantages you have received, to fit you to do a little better than the average man that you meet. It is incumbent upon you to show that the training has had that effect. It ought to enable you to do a little better for yourselves. And if you have in your souls capable of a thrill of generous emotion, souls capable of understanding what you owe to your training, to your alma mater, to the past and the present that have given you all that you have, if you have such souls, it ought to make you doubly bent upon disinterested work for the state and the nation. Such work can be done along many different lines. I want today, here in California, to make a special appeal to all of you, and to California as a whole, for work along a certain line, the line of preserving your great natural advantages alike from the standpoint of use and from the standpoint of beauty. If the students of this institution have not, by the mere fact of their surroundings, learned to appreciate beauty, then the fault is in you and not in the surroundings. Here in California, you have some of the great wonders of the world. You have a singularly beautiful landscape, singularly beautiful and singularly majestic scenery, and it should certainly be your aim to try to preserve for those who are to come after you that beauty, to try to keep unmarred that majesty. Closely entwined with keeping unmarred the beauty of your scenery, of your great natural attractions, is the question of making use of, not for the moment merely, but for the future time of your great natural products. Yesterday, I saw for the first time a grove of your great trees, a grove which it has taken the ages several thousands of years to build up. And I feel most emphatically that we should not turn into shingles a tree which was old when the first Egyptian conqueror penetrated to the valley of the Euphrates, which it has taken so many thousands of years to build up, and which can be put to better use. That, you may say, is not looking at the matter from the practical standpoint. There is nothing more practical in the end than the preservation of beauty, than the preservation of anything that appeals to the higher emotions in mankind. But furthermore, I appeal to you from the standpoint of use. A few big trees of unusual size and beauty should be preserved for their own sake, but the forests as a whole should be used for business purposes. Only they should be used in a way that will preserve them as a permanent source of national wealth. In many parts of California, the whole future welfare of the state depends upon the way in which you are able to use your water supply. And the preservation of the forests and the preservation of the use of the water are inseparably connected. 
I believe we are past the stage of national existence when we could look on complacently at the individual who skinned the land and was content for the sake of three years' profit for himself to leave a desert for the children of those who were to inherit the soil. I think we have passed that stage. We should handle, and I think we now do handle, all problems such as those of forestry and of the preservation and use of our waters from the standpoint of the permanent interest of the homemaker in any region, the man who comes in not to take what he can out of the soil and leave, having exploited the country, but who comes to dwell therein, to bring up his children, and to leave them a heritage in the country not merely unimpaired, but if possible even improved. That is the sensible view of civic obligation in the policy of the state and of the nation. It should be shaped in that direction. It should be shaped in the interest of the homemaker, the actual resident, the man who is not only to be benefited himself, but whose children and children's children are to be benefited by what he has done. California has for years, I am happy to say, taken a more sensible, a more intelligent interest in forest preservation than any other state. It early appointed a forest commission. Later on, some of the functions of that commission were replaced by the Sierra Club, a club which has done much on the Pacific coast to perpetuate the spirit of the explorer and the pioneer. Then, I am happy to say, a great business interest showed an intelligent and far-sighted spirit which is of happy augury, for the redwood manufacturers of San Francisco were first among lumbermen's associations to give assistance to the cause of practical forestry. The study of the redwood which the action of this association made possible was the pioneer study in the cooperative work which is now being carried out between lumbermen all over the United States and the Federal Bureau of Forestry. All of this kind of work is peculiarly the kind of work in which we have a right to expect not merely hearty cooperation from, but leadership in college men trained in the universities of this Pacific Coast state. For the forests of this state stand alone in the world. There are none others like them anywhere. There are no other trees anywhere like the giant sequoias. Nowhere else is there a more beautiful forest than that which closed the western slope of the Sierra. Very early your forests attracted lumbermen from other states, and by the course of timberland investments some of the best of the big tree groves were threatened with destruction. Destruction came upon some of them, but the women of California rose to the emergency through the California Club, and later the Sempervirens Club took vigorous action. But the Calaveras Grove is not yet safe, and there should be no rest until that safety is secured by the nation of private individuals, by the action of the state, by the action of the nation. The interest of California in forest protection was shown even more effectively by the purchase of the Big Basin Redwood Park, a superb forest property, the possession of which should be a source of just pride to all citizens jealous of California's good name. I appeal to you, as I say, to protect these mighty trees, these wonderful monuments of beauty. I appeal to you to protect them for the sake of their beauty. But I also make the appeal just as strongly on economic grounds, as I am well aware that in dealing with such questions, a far-sighted economic policy must be that to which alone in the long run one can safely appeal. The interests of California and forests depend directly, of course, upon the handling of her wood and water supplies, and the supply of material from the lumber woods and the production of agricultural products on irrigated farms. 
The great valleys which stretch through the state between the Sierra Nevada and coast ranges must owe their future development as they owe their present prosperity to irrigation. Whatever tends to destroy the water supply of the Sacramento, the San Gabriel, and the other valleys strikes vitally at the welfare of California. The welfare of California depends in no small measure upon the preservation of water for the purposes of irrigation in those beautiful and fertile valleys which cannot grow crops by rainfall alone. The forest cover upon the drainage basins of streams used for irrigation purposes is of prime importance to the interests of the entire state. Now keep in mind that the whole object of forest protection is, as I have said again and again, the making and maintaining of prosperous homes. I am not advocating forest protection from the aesthetic standpoint only. I do advocate the keeping of big trees, the great monarchs of the woods, for the sake of their beauty. But I advocate the preservation and wise use of the forest because I feel it is essential to the interests of the actual settlers. I am asking that the forest be used wisely for the sake of the successors of the pioneers, for the sake of the settlers who dwell on the land and by doing so extend the borders of our civilization. I ask it for the sake of the man who makes his farm in the woods or lower down along the sides of the streams which have their rise in the mountains. Every phase of the land policy of the United States is, as it by right ought to be, directed to the upbuilding of the homemaker. The one sure test of all public land legislation should be, does it help to make and to keep prosperous homes? If it does, the legislation is good. If it does not, the legislation is bad. Any legislation which has a tendency to give land in large tracts to people who will lease it out to tenants is undesirable. We do not want ever to let our land policy be shaped so as to create a big class of proprietors who rent to others. We want to make the smaller men who, under such conditions, would rent actual proprietors. We must shape our policy so that these men themselves shall be the landowners, the makers of homes, the keepers of homes. Certain of our land laws, however, benefit, uh, however ben beneficent their purposes, have been twisted into an improper use, so that there have grown up abuses under them by which they tend to create a class of men who, under one color and another, obtain large tracts of soil for speculative purposes or to rent out to others and there should be now a thorough scrutiny of our land laws with the object of so amending them as to do away with the possibility of such abuses if it was not for the national irrigation act we would be about past the time when uncle sam could give every man a farm comparatively little of our land is left which is adapted to farming without irrigation the homemaker on the public land must hereafter, in the great majority of cases, have water for irrigation, or the making of his home will fail. Let us keep that fact before our minds. Do not misunderstand me when I have spoken of the defects of our land laws. Our land laws have served a noble purpose in the past and have become the models for other governments. The homestead law has been a notable instrument for good. To establish a family permanently upon a quarter section of land, or of course upon a less quantity if it is irrigated land, is the best use to which it can be put. The first need of any nation is intelligent and honest citizens. Such can come only from honest and intelligent homes. And to get the good citizenship, we must get the good homes. 
It is absolutely necessary that the remainder of our public land should be reserved for the homemaker. And it is necessary in my judgment that there should be a revision of the land laws and a cutting out of such provisions from them as in actual practice under present conditions tend to make possible the acquisition of large tracts for speculative purposes or for the purpose of leasing to others. Citizenship is the prime test in the welfare of the nation, but we need good laws. And above all, we need good land laws throughout the West. We want to see the free farmer own his home. The best of the public lands are already in private hands, and yet the rate of their disposal is steadily increasing. More than six million acres were patented during the first three months of the present year. It is time for us to see that our remaining public lands are saved for the homemaker to the utmost limit of his possible use. I say this to you of this university because we have a right to expect that the best trained, the best educated men on the Pacific Slope, the Rocky Mountains and the Great Plains states will take the lead in the preservation and right use of the forests, in securing the right use of the waters, and in seeing to it that our land policy is not twisted from its original purpose, but is perpetuated by amendment, by change when such change is necessary in the line of that purpose, the purpose being to turn the public domain into farms, each to be the property of the man who actually tills it and makes his home on it. Infinite are the possibilities for usefulness that lie before such a body as that I am addressing. Work? Of course, you will have to work. I should be sorry for you if you did not have to work. Of course, you will have to work, and I envy you the fact that before you, before the graduates of this, this university, lies the chance of lives to be spent in hard labor for great and glorious useful causes hard labor for the uplifting of your states of the union of all mankind i do hope uh, this came through to you today uh, we uh, again have received a little message that it might not well we'll work on our issues here as more and more are using the internet in medora we look forward to seeing you here uh, this week still. We've got uh, Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir at Yosemite, uh, a camping trip that changed the nation. And also Theodore Roosevelt's opening remarks to the White House Conference on the Conservation of Natural Resources. Uh, this is from uh, May of 1908, uh, followed by a uh, North American conference held right before Theodore Roosevelt left the White House. Both of those conferences chaired by Gifford Pinchot, the head of the uh, Forest Service. And then in uh, 1910, William Howard Taft canceled what had been planned, the first international conference on the conservation of natural resources, just many of the uh, uh, issues that led Theodore Roosevelt to toss his hat in the ring to declare himself healthy as a bull moose uh, for that 1912 campaign. If you've been able to stay along for this installment of Teddy Talks, I'm delighted that you did so. We'll see you again tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, May 13th. And my recollection is those are the opening remarks of that conservation conference at the White House, the Governor's Conference. And uh, happy International Nurses Day. God bless our nurses. Have a wonderful day. Goodbye. Good luck. See you tomorrow on Teddy Talks.